Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Malachi. We're going to do things a little bit differently tonight than we normally do. We normally cover a full chapter each week as, we're going, as we've been going through the Minor Prophets, but we're going to uh, break the last two chapters down into two studies. And you can see why when you, when you look ahead to chapter 4. It's a really short chapter, and uh, chapter 3 is a rather long chapter. Uh, and all of the material in both of these chapters are equally important, so I won't be able to skate over any of it. So uh, you know, I think we can do it in two studies, but uh, we won't, again, we won't be covering a whole chapter tonight. We'll, we'll do about 12 verses in chapter number three. And as we begin chapter number three, uh, we get this great prophecy that I think we're all familiar with in, chap- in, in verse number one. And the Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger. Now, that's an interesting phrase there, my messenger, because in the Hebrew, my messenger means what? You ought to know. It mean, in the Hebrew the word for my messenger is Malachi. And that leads some people to believe that there's no such person as Malachi, that uh, there, some other author wrote the book, and, and the, name, the title of the book was given to it because that's the major, one of the major themes of the book. I personally believe that a guy named Malachi wrote the book, and, it, and it's just really the way God does things that uh, his name matches uh, one of the great themes of the book. And, and uh, listen to what he says. Behold, I send my messenger, uh, and uh, he will prepare the way before me. Now, we know exactly who that messenger is, don't we? Who is he? He's John the Baptist. And... Uh, we know that because in all the synoptic gospels, uh, that verse, that part of this verse is quoted. Uh, for one example, you remember when John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, uh, prophesied over his son, he said to his son uh, he, these words, Behold, no, he said these words, the next part of this verse, he says he will prepare the way before me, uh, it really the way Zechariah worded it was, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And really you can say you will go for the Lord to prepare his ways. Uh, and he will prepare the way before, or the way it says here, he will prepare the way for me. So uh, notice the, the pronoun there. It's capitalized. Now, in the Hebrew, you, you wouldn't see that capital, but the translators, I think, are right here capitalizing that because uh, that tells us that, that the person, uh, he, that John the Baptist was to go to prepare the way for Jehovah God. Who is Jehovah God that he prepared the way for? Jesus Christ in the flesh. So this is a clear declaration again. We see this throughout the Scripture of the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't know how anybody can, can read the Bible and not know from reading the Bible that Jesus is God. All right, and so uh, he says he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord, watch this amazing prophecy now in the last part of verse number one. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. So John the Baptist was the messenger of the messenger. He was the messenger of Jesus Christ. So he says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, in whom the Lord delights. Behold, 
He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, remember the context of the whole book of Malachi. Malachi was speaking to the Jews that were, were, were building, rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And uh, at this point, they had built the temple. And so uh, he's telling them that that very temple which they rebuilt is the place one day where the Lord is going to come and he's going to stand in their presence. Why did they build the temple? They built the temple so they could seek the Lord, so they could find the Lord, so they could pray to the Lord. But they didn't have the visible presence of the Lord like the Jews did in Solomon's temple, like they did in the tabernacle. Remember how this cloud of glory uh, was stayed over the tabernacle and over the temple. And so, uh, you know, even though it wasn't God in the flesh, they knew that God was there. And here they are building this temple out of brick and stone, and there's no visible presence of God. And so God encourages them by saying uh, that uh, he says here in this last part, the Lord whom you seek, whom, you know, he's the one who you built the temple for, suddenly one day is going to come and he's going to stand in that very temple. Now, he, when, when Jesus came to this earth, he went into Herod's temple, but Herod's temple was really built around Zerubbabel's temple. So this very temple in which they built, uh, he was... You know, he came and he stood there, and we know that that happened about 400 years after Malachi wrote uh, these words. He says, even the messenger of the covenant. Now, what covenant is he talking about? He's talking about the new covenant. Uh, Jesus came in the temple offering a new covenant, not one based upon the law and the covering of sin, but one based upon the Total grace and the total removal of sin. How was sin removed? Well, we all know it was removed by his broken body and shed blood on the cross. And, and this messenger, he says, he says, in whom you delight, in whom the Lord delights. You remember when John baptized this mess, my messenger, as, as Jehovah calls him, when he baptized Jesus Christ, remember what the father said? He said, this is my son in whom I delight. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And uh, he's coming. He, so Malachi is saying, or the Lord saying through Malachi, hey, get ready. The Lord is coming into the temple. And when he comes there, you ought to be able to recognize him. They didn't, but they ought to have been able to recognize him. Now, the, good, the fact that he came with a new covenant we, what do we call that? We call it the gospel. And what do we call that? We call that good news. That was, that's good news. The fact that Jesus stands in that temple, the Lord comes to this earth, is really good news for those who receive Christ. But it's really bad news for those who reject that covenant. And, and uh, I, I like the way Jesus described uh, the choice we have in either receiving or rejecting the the gospel. It's actually kind of scary what he says because it's, it almost sounds like bad news for everybody because Jesus put it like this in Luke 20, verse 18. He says, everyone who falls on this stone, and he was speaking of himself, the, the rock of ages, everyone who falls on this stone will be broken. But 
upon whom it falls, he will be crushed. And so the choices really don't sound that good. I mean, uh, you receive Jesus Christ and you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means you're, that stone is going to fall on you. Uh, and uh, you're going to be uh, refined through fire. It's not going to be easy to be a Christian. It's not going to be easy to re receive the gospel. But it's a lot better than the, the other choice. And that's to reject the gospel. And then you're crushed. I mean, you're, you're doomed eternally. So what Malachi does in these next few verses in this prophecy, he describes that refining process, the refining process of the Lord. Look at verse number two. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? In other words, hey, you had to get, you know, they had to get excited when they hear this word that the Lord himself is going to come and he's going to stand in the temple. One day suddenly the Lord's going to appear and he's going to be there. And that sounds like great news. And it is great news. I mean, it's great news to be saved, but a lot of times people think salvation is a ticket to prosperity and happiness and joy and nothing else. Uh, it's also a ticket to God taking us and changing us into the likeness of his son. And that's a refinement process. And it's a very painful process. I don't know about you, but for me, it's a very painful process. And, and I, I, I've been doing this now for 29 years, almost 30 years. And and it isn't any less painful now than it was the first day. And I think a lot of that's because I'm a little bit rebellious, but, uh, or very rebellious, but, but uh, that refinement is not an easy process. So who can endure the day of his coming? And in, who can stand when he appears? I mean, those who reject him, they're going to be crushed. Uh, those who believe in him, the stone's going to fall on them. For he is like a refiner's fire. He's, he, he's, I mean, we think of Jesus as the meek and mild and loving Jesus, and he is. But he's also a refiner's fire. I mean, he sends fire for two reasons. One is for judgment. One is for refinement. You know, we think of the Holy Spirit, and that's what bothers me about some people's take on the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, this idea that it just, you know, you bark and you laugh and you do all those kind of things. And, and that's the function of the Holy Spirit to make you high. The function of God sends his spirit as fire to refine us and to judge those who reject Jesus Christ. He con convicts the world of, of sin and of righteousness because he ascended to heaven. And, and uh, uh, he convicts us too. And he purifies us. So he said, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like launderer's soap that's stuck in your mouth when you say bad things. It's like uh, my mom used to threaten me with that. And a few times she actually did that. Uh, she gonna make, if I said bad things, she would make us eat soap. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you've done that with your kids today that put you in jail for doing something like that. But, but uh, that was the way of refining people back, for refining their mouths back when I was growing up. Verse number three, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. I mean, he's got a purpose in his discipline. He's got a purpose uh, in, in uh, the trials that he sends our way. They're heat. They, he turns up the heat in order to refine us, to take away the dross, to take away the things that are bad in our lives. And he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. And, and 
they'll be made clean like soap makes people clean. Why? Uh, look at the last part of that verse. He says, so that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, you remember the context of what's being taught right here. Uh, back in chapter 2, they, the Levites were rebuked for the fact that they weren't offering offerings in righteousness. They were offering offerings in wickedness. Remember, go back to chapter 2 and look at verses 8 and 9. He says, but you have departed from the way. He says, you have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse number 9. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways but have shown partiality in the law. And Jesus says what Jesus is saying right here through Malachi is that the day is going to come when I'm going to refine the priesthood. And instead of sowing wickedness and evil, the priests are going to sow to righteousness. And so they will offer offerings in righteousness instead of wickedness. Now, there's application there certainly for all of us as born-again believers in Jesus Christ because we are a royal priesthood. And God is in the process of refining us through heat, through the heat of trials, and through cleansing us by the soap of his word and his spirit so that we can offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Uh, living sacrifices who are in the position to offer up sacrifices of righteousness. You know, our whole life should, should uh, speak to this world. As, we should be light in this world, lights of righteousness that shine forth the light of God. And if we're shining forth anything else, then, then if we're a born-again believer, God's just going to turn up the heat. Because he's going to refine us. He's going to refine his children. And he's going to cleanse us and make us the kind of witnesses we should be in this lost and dying world. I'll tell you that right now if you're a born-again believer. And then in the last days, and that's what this passage is speaking of right here, the Lord is going to, when he returns, he's going to restore the, Levi the, the, the Levitical priesthood to what it was meant to be, uh, to their proper place. Look at verse number four. He says, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. Remember the whole first part of this book, he was talking about how their offerings were uh, 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 an uh, anathema to him, a curse to him. He didn't like their offerings, but they were because their hearts weren't right. Their hearts didn't. Their offerings, uh, they were offering up blind cows and defected uh, goods to the Lord instead of offering their very best. And but he says in those days. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, when, they first, when he first set them apart to be the priest of Israel, they did the things they, they were supposed to do. And let me tell you why they did the things they were supposed to do. Because you remember when Hophni and Phinehas uh, decided to do things a little bit different, and they offered up an offering that had evil intent. I, and I think more than likely, I'm not going to go back to that passage, but they were drunk when they were making those offerings. And so they were setting a bad example, and, they, and their hearts weren't right, and so the offerings were wicked. And what did God do? He destroyed them right before the very eyes of Israel. 
And boy, everybody, all the Levites said, you know, we better take this stuff seriously. We better do this thing the way God's prescribed it. I mean, he told Aaron, don't you even weep for your sons? I mean, this stuff's a lot more important than your temporal life, what you're doing right here. And everybody got the point for a while. But then God kind of backed. It's kind of like Ananias and Sapphira. If we had a few, uh, was that their names? And, and yeah, and, and, you know, if we had a few people uh, taken out like Ananias and Sapphira, we would all straighten up. Uh, get more, a lot more serious about our relationship with the Lord and not lying to the Holy Spirit and being sincere in our relationship to the Lord. But uh, thank goodness uh, he gives us, gives us some grace on those kind of matters. And so he says in verse number five, and I will come near to you, near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness. In other words, the wicked who reject the Lord they're going to be crushed. You're going to be, the stone's going to fall upon you, and you're going to be disciplined, and you're going to be refined through fire. But look at what's going to happen to the wicked. Look at verse number four, and it will, I mean, verse number five, and it will come, I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away from a foreigner. Not really aliens like in, in science fiction movies. He's talking about foreigners here. And he gives the reason here. Look at this. Bec it's not so much their adultery. It's not so much their perjury. It's not so much uh, that they exploit people. It's the reason they do it. The reason they do it is because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I mean... You look at the world today. Why do people do the things they do? Because they don't fear the Lord. And they don't fear the Lord because they don't know the Lord. And they don't know the Lord because they refuse to know the Lord. They don't want a relationship with the Lord. And if they did want a relationship with the Lord, then the stone would fall on them and they would be refined and they wouldn't practice wickedness. You know, here's where a lot of people get Christianity or mess up or have a messed up idea of Christianity. They don't realize the fact that, I mean, we're not saved. We all know that we don't get saved by practicing righteousness. We practice righteousness because we are saved. And if we don't practice righteousness, that's a good indication that we're not saved. That we, let me tell you what, the righteousness that I practice, I practice because I fear the Lord. I, I fear the Lord because I know the Lord. I know the Lord through his word. I know the Lord through the way he acts in my life, the things that he does in my life. And so because I know the Lord, I'm going to live righteously. I want to live righteously. Not only do I know the Lord, but I, I, know, I love the Lord because I know the Lord. And because I love the Lord, I want to practice righteousness. I want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And, and we're all going to fall. But when I fall, you know, there's grace there. But I feel bad about it. I mean, I hate myself when I fall into wickedness. 
And I wouldn't, I wouldn't think about engaging in sorcery and adulteries and some of the things that are, are, uh, he talks about here in this passage because I fear the Lord. And I love the Lord and I love his law. And I know his law is good and I know it's right. I'm not under law, but I love his law. Verse number six. So uh, the Lord says, for I am the Lord. And I do not change. What are you saying right here? Even though I'm going to judge the wicked, really everyone's wicked. I'm going to save a remnant. He says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. You're not consumed, not because you're better, O sons of Jacob, than the rest of the people. You're not consumed because of the covenant I made with Abraham. We're not consumed because of the, the new covenant that his messenger made with us. It's not so much that we're better than other people. We're, the difference between us and other people is that God has given us his grace and we've received the gospel or we've, we've accepted the gospel and we fear the Lord. And, and because we fear the Lord, we've received the gospel and we know the Lord. And because we know the Lord, we love the Lord, not because we're better than anybody else. And that's where a lot of people go wrong. We strictly are covenants of his by faith the same way a Jew was saved we're saved the same way the sons of Jacob are saved and really all of us to some degree were sons of Abraham and sons of Jacob we're saved by faith the Old Testament was a covenant of faith the New Testament is a covenant of faith in the Old Testament the Old Testament saints look forward to the cross through the sacrificial system I don't think they understood the cross and what the cross was all about no more than Maybe we understand it a little bit more, but we don't understand it fully either. There's a lot of things that went on at that cross that we'll never fully understand. But we look back to the cross. They look forward to the cross through those blood sacrifices that they made. They knew that the wages of sin was death and that somebody had to die for their sin. In fact, I think, I think in some ways they had a much more vivid uh, picture of the gospel than we do. I mean, because, you know, we kind of, that's something that happened 2,000 years ago. Every single day, every time they sinned, they had to kill their little pet lamb. Or every year they had to kill their little pet lamb, and their little pet doves, and all of these animals that they had to raise and bring into their home and kill so that they understood the seriousness of sin and that the only redemption for sin was the blood. And we, we, we get to look back at the cross, and we don't have to shed the blood of animals because the blood of God was shed for us. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, he says that it is impossible to please God without faith. You see, our covenant, their covenant was a covenant of faith. Our covenant is a covenant of faith. And those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him are those who fear him, you, you could say. Those who diligently fear the Lord. I mean, you know, if you, to seek the Lord, you seek the Lord on his own terms. And he's a holy God. And without holiness, you will not see God. And so we come to the Lord through grace, but we also come to the Lord, hopefully, being refined by fire. And we're living the kind of life that the, God, that the Lord wants us to live. All right. And only a remnant of what we call the church is going to be saved but only a remnant of the sons of Jacob 
we're truly saved because people try to come to the Lord in ways other than faith. And so uh, the Israelites who didn't have real faith didn't fear the Lord. And again, I think the same thing can be said for much of the church today. That without real faith, you don't fear the Lord. And, and listen to the next part of this diatribe. How, how do I know if I have real faith? That's where the Lord's going to take us now. How do, you, how do you know if you have real faith? Uh, not because you say you love the Lord. I mean, I think I'll, I'll hit one way real quickly uh, before we get into the way that the Lord's going to show us. But one way is by our obedience to the Lord. Do we obey the Lord's callings on our life? Do we obey the, the things that God calls us to do? I mean, do, if he calls us to love one another, do we love one another? Uh, he calls us to go to the mission field. Are we willing to go to the mission field? He calls us to whatever we, he calls us to do. Do we obey the Lord? But there's another way. It may be the most important way. And, and that's where he's heading here in verse number seven. He said, yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. In other words, you haven't done what I've asked you to do. You haven't been obedient. And that shows me, the Lord says, that you don't know me. But return to me and obey me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. He, he's not speaking to the remnant here. He's speaking to Israel as a whole because Israel as a whole, even at this point, was a disobedient nation. And they really weren't saved. Uh, the ones that were saved were saved by grace, but as a whole, they really weren't saved. And so he says, return to me and I'll save you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Here's this diatribe again. In other words, what do you mean return to you? I mean, be like me pointing one of y'all out here and saying, you're not saved. You need to return to the Lord and the Lord will return to you. And you'll be saved. And you'll say, whoa, wait a minute. I love the Lord. In what way are you, do you, are you and for what reason do you say I'm not saved? I mean, you can understand the Israelites thinking on this. They were the chosen people of God. And they all would have said, we love you, Lord. So in what way should we return? And God's going to give them, I think, maybe the uh, number one barometer of our relationship with the Lord. Maybe the number two. Again, I think obedience might be the number one, but maybe the number two barometer. But he puts it really at the forefront, and that is a person's giving. Now you better grab your wallets here because I'm going to be talking to you. Look at verse number A. Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? But you say, what way have we robbed you? And he gives them a clear answer in tithes and offerings. In other words, you've held back your tithes and offerings. And not only that, we, we looked at the earlier part of Malachi. They were, the, the offerings they were bringing were their leftovers. You know, they're blind cows, they're lame lambs. 
They, weren't, they were bringing in defective goods as offerings to the Lord. And he says in verse, verse number 9, he says, You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. In fact, your whole nation is cursed. Why? Because you robbed the Lord of your tithes and offerings. Now, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, so, so you know, I mean, I, I don't know what anybody gives in here, but, but hopefully nobody's fallen into this, into this situation in their own personal lives. You know, I, I meet a lot of people who justify their lack of giving by saying they are not under law, but they're under grace. I've heard that over and over and over again. And they're right. They aren't under law. But the law also says, do not murder. But you don't run around murdering people because you're under grace. I know that murder is wrong because we have the law and the law is good. I know that not giving to the Lord is wrong because we have the laws related to tithes and the law is good. I mean, the law, if we're truly born again, is part of who we are. And if we fear the Lord and we know the Lord and we love the Lord, then it's only natural that we want to give back to the Lord. And if we don't want to give back to the Lord, I don't care what we sing or what we say, we don't really love the Lord. And you're not, people that do that aren't fooling the Lord. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't, he doesn't need any, anything that we have. He doesn't need our time. But he wants our love. And, he, and the way we show him our love is by our giving of our money and of our time. I mean, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. I mean, if you give it because you think you're under law, then you waste your giving. He wants us to give because our hearts are right with him and we're, we're, we fear the Lord and we know the Lord and we love the Lord. And when we don't give, I'm a, and I, I, man, I, I can tell you, 20 years in the ministry, actually more than that, I've seen this principle play out over and over and over and over again. So many times I want to say to people, scream at people, but I don't, I, I, it's, well, you're not under law. But I want to scream at people. The reason you're having all the problems you're having is because you give nothing to the Lord. Money or time or both. And when we don't give to the Lord, it's very clear right here, we are cursed. But not because we're disobeying the law, the law, but because it's a barometer of the fact that we really don't know the Lord. We really, where you place your priority on the giving of your time and money is an indicator of where you place God in the priority of the things that you do or the priority of the things in your life. 
If he's first priority, then he gets the first fruits of what we give. That's not law. That's what our heart should be. And when we don't give, we really don't love the Lord. I don't care what we say. And let me tell you what else. We don't trust the Lord. We can talk about all the faith we have. We don't trust the Lord. Because I can tell you this right now, and this is New Testament. What you sow is what you reap. And if we believe that, then we're going to sow bountifully so that we reap bountifully. And when, we, and when we don't, one of two things is going on. We don't love the Lord or we don't trust the Lord. But now he, he reverses this and approaches it from the standpoint, not as a curse, but as a, a misblessing. In fact, he gives this exhortation here. This is not Old Testament. This is God speaking to every person in every age. Listen to what he says. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, that my ministry will be taken care of. That's what he's saying. And try me now on this. Test me on this, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord who's over all of heaven and has power over all things. He says, test me on this. Show me that you love me. Show me that you trust me. And watch and see what I'll do for you when you give to my ministry with a cheerful heart. Look and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. You know, I can testify exactly as David testifies in the Psalms after decades of living on this earth. I can honestly say that I've never seen a righteous man begging for bread. Never. And on the reverse side of that proverb, I have never seen a stingy man who wasn't cursed in one way or the other, and especially if they call themselves Christians and they don't give to the work of the Lord. Their lives are a mess. We, we learned a while ago, everybody has trials and tribulations. But I'm talking about a mess where their lives have no rhyme, no reason, just cursed, and you see it. Give, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, and it will be given to you. That's a New Testament, by the way. In good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will be poured into your lap. Same thing as Malachi. For with the measure you give, it will be measured to you. And there's two reasons why people don't answer that exhortation by giving. And that is, one, they don't love the Lord. I don't care what they say. And number two, they don't trust the Lord. And that principle doesn't just apply on an individual level, it applies on a national level too. Look at verse number 11. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Who's the devourer? 
Satan and his cronies and everyone who comes against God's people to destroy, and to be part of that curse. You got a lot of devourers hanging out. God will take care of them if you follow that principle. So that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. I mean, this applies, this gets on a national level, on an individual level. It applies to your family. It applies to your to your to your job it applies to your whole life i mean when i mean you don't do you don't give to the lord to get rich but you certainly if you fear the lord and you love the lord and you give to the lord you're going to have a hedge of protection you're going to be living under the shadow of god's wings and life is going to be a lot better and god's going to allow some trials in there certainly but life's going to be a lot better he says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, the, your homes, your jobs, your lives. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. You're going to be blessed bountifully, says the Lord of hosts. Just another way of putting it. And all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts, if you give. All the nations who love the Lord and serve the Lord and give to the Lord, they will be blessed bountifully by the Lord. The reason the United States of America is blessed the way it is is because the giving to missions and, and ministry and to the poor and to hospitals and all of that that has been done through the church over the centuries. Now, it's gone now pretty much. But, and, and there was a time when this nation was full of joy, full of prosperity, full of unity. And you look at our nation now. We got a bunch of stingy people who are riding on the blessings that have been come forth to this country through our forefathers because we were a giving nation. And now we're the most self nation of the most self-centered people on earth. And it all begins on an individual level. It begins with you and it begins with me. We want to be blessed, then we need to learn to give. And if we don't give, we don't love the Lord. And we don't trust the Lord. Because if you really believe his word, you would be a fool not to give to the work of the Lord. I mean a fool. Let's go to the heart of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this word tonight. We thank you for the great promises you give us of all these blessings, Lord. And, and we don't give to you, Lord, to get. We give to you because... Lord, you loved us so much that you died for us. You gave us your only begotten son. Lord, you, you give us the air we breathe. This creation is your creation. This, this nation is your nation. What we have, you've given us. And Lord, you don't need anything. Anything that we can give you, 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 you don't need any of it. But you want our love, Lord, and we want to be loving people. We want people be people who trust you.
We want to give to your kingdom's work, Lord, so that that uh, your kingdom will flourish. And Lord, in, in, in due season, we expect a return in our own personal lives, Lord, a return of blessings and not curses. Lord, I just ask you to, to, to bring this message back home to your church, not just here in, on Wednesday night in, in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, but throughout this country that people will wake up and, Lord, that we'll all learn to be more giving. Lord, we just thank you for, for your love for us. And we, again, we thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.